The scripture this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early, on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, she told them, that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, Before I begin, you probably noticed that as you came in, the uh, young people were helping you get to your seats today, so I'd like to just thank them for giving us this uh, service this morning. So thank you to our junior and senior highs. It's a big job to tell New Yorkers where to go. So they were very brave. Um, If you've been uh, around for the last uh, several weeks, you know that we are in a series in which we are looking at um, uh, topics that um, oftentimes cause obstacles to belief in Christianity. Uh, For example, we've looked at um, how can God be good in the face of suffering and evil? Um, How can there be exclusive truth claims that Jesus is the way? Isn't that an intolerant um, view of the world? Uh, Next week uh, it's going to be, how do you know that the Bible is true? Isn't it just another book? Um, 
So each of these topics, although very specific, share something in common, and that is they all create doubt. It's as if um, to get to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is, if you're a Christian or if you're, just, if you're not sure about Christianity, you have to go through these various, very specific doors. But once you get behind them, they all share a hallway called doubt. And that you'll never understand who Jesus is and how that, what, the, what difference it makes unless you transverse through that pathway. You've got to get through the hallway of doubt. And so think about it. When you say, how can God be good in the face of evil and suffering? It immediately creates doubt. Or isn't the Bible just another book? Doubt. See, it's all of our problem. You know that if you're a Christian, then what you do is you live on this continuum of skepticism and doubt. There are periods in your relationship with God that you are full of joy, full of hope, full of confidence. And then circumstances come along. The storms in your life begin to brew, and you begin to lose hope. You begin to lose faith. You begin to doubt. And so we have to try to understand, regardless of what your particular issue is, that is an obstacle to your belief in Christianity, how do you deal with doubt? What is it? How do you overcome it? And so what we have here this morning in front of us is a case study in which we're going to learn three things about how to overcome and understand what doubt is. We have to unmask our doubt, we have to examine our faith, and we have to fuel our hope. Unmask our doubt, examine our faith, and fuel our hope. Look at verses 1 and 2. Let's unmask our doubt. Mary, who um, was part of Jesus' inner circle, she had been a deep, in a deep friendship with him and, and with the other disciples, and she'd been following him and listening to him. Um, Jesus is now dead. He's been crucified, and she comes to the tomb. And, and so she sees that now, much to her surprise, the stone has been rolled away, and the tomb is empty. And so, of course, immediately she runs to the other people in the inner circle, Peter and the disciple Jesus loved, which is John. She goes to Peter and John, and she says what? They have taken the Lord. Now, let's just stop right there. Let's begin to unpack the case study. Because what is happening? Mary has come and been presented with physical evidence. There's an empty tomb. And she has examined that evidence, and she has come to a conclusion based on the evidence. Grave robbing. Now, it's not an unreasonable conclusion to draw based on the evidence, because we know that during uh, that time in Roman history, grave robbing was a capital offense. It was a serious issue. So it's, it's, it's one explanation to the evidence, a reasonable one. But look at verse 8. Jesus, I mean, John, the other disciple, comes along. He sees the very same evidence. He examines the evidence, and he believed. In other words, his conclusion was, Jesus is alive. He walked out. He was part of the same inner circle, and Jesus had said, I am going to be resurrected. So in this case study, at the very beginning, what we have in Mary and John is we have the secular and the religious views of the world. You know, it's very common to hear when you think about these kind of issues. Well, there are people of faith and there are people of reason. There are people who look at the evidence and are skeptical and say, unless you can prove it to me empirically, unless I can understand it scientifically, I'm going to doubt. I don't believe it. Grave robbery. There are other people, the religious types, the people of faith, who live by these ancient creeds and believe in this ethereal divine power and say, resurrection, the natural and the supernatural, faith and reason. Now, there was an, um, Richard Dawkins, the brilliant physicist. Uh, you may have seen uh, his uh, new book, The God Delusion, was reviewed in last week's New York Times. He was also interviewed in the most recent um, edition of Wired magazine, and this is what he had to say. 
He said, the big war is not between creationism and evolutionism, between naturalism and supernaturalism. That, he said, is where the war is. Grave robbery, physical, natural explanation, resurrection, supernatural, position of faith. He says, that's where it is. That's where the nub is. Now, if we stop and think about that, I think that that actually confuses the issue when it comes to doubt. I think it sets up kind of a false dichotomy between faith and reason, between supernatural and natural views of the world. You see, maybe like Mary, you come to the claims of Christianity. You come to the tomb and, and you say grave robbery. You know, that's the only kind of explanation that I can come up with. But what about John's view? What about the fact that maybe Jesus walked out? Well, you might say, well, that's just impossible. And the question is, why? Why is it impossible? And the answer would be because resurrection doesn't happen. Oh, how do you know? Can you prove it scientifically? Can you prove it empirically? No, it's a faith you have. See, when Mary comes to the tomb, her doubt in the possibility of the resurrection is a belief in a position that someone stole the body. And that belief is based on an assumption that resurrection can't happen. Right? See, that's the first point. When you come to a doubt, when no matter how cynical or skeptical you may be, you need to take off the mask of that doubt. And what you'll find underneath all of your doubts, underneath all of my doubts, is faith, belief, assumptions. Not faith versus reason, faith versus faith. Belief versus belief, assumptions versus assumptions. That's it. I mean, think of, let's think about some of the, the obstacles to Christianity. You might say, well, there can't be just one true religion. There can't be just one truth when it comes to ultimate reality. But if you say that, you have to at least unmask your doubt and recognize that it's just another way of saying is what you believe is that all truth is relative. That's your belief. It's a leap of faith. You can't prove it, but you believe it. Or you might say that, well, I don't have any particular belief in God. I'm, I don't really feel the need to choose from among all the religious views in the world, right? Now, that doubt in God or who God is, or the Christian view of God, for example, is really a belief that either God isn't there, or that if he is there, he doesn't care, or, or hold you accountable to how you're going to live your life. Now, that may or may not be true, but take off the mask and recognize that that doubt is just a belief. It's a leap of faith. It's based on an assumption, and you are betting your life on it. You're betting your life on the fact that it's true. Every doubt is a faith system. It is not faith versus reason. It is not supernaturalism versus naturalism. It's faith versus faith. Belief versus belief. So everyone in here, everyone in here, whether you believe in Christianity or not, is a person of faith. You've made some leap, some assumption about the world. Richard Dawkins, in the interview last week uh, in the New York Times, in his book about God delusion, said this. He says, I cannot know for certain... But I think God is very improbable. And then listen to this. And I live my life on the assumption that he is not there. He's a man of faith, as are we all. So don't just take your doubts at face value. Unmask them. Christian, non-Christian, I don't care who you are, you have to understand your doubt is an alternative belief. 
And there is a faith that is underneath an assumption that you are making in your doubt. So you have to unmask your doubt. And some of you are saying, well, so what? Is that just some kind of, you know, philosophical or theological chess game that you're playing? And the answer is no. I mean, it could not be more important to unmask your doubt. So that leads us to the second point, which is you have to understand what's underneath the mask. You have to understand your faith. See, it's almost Halloween, so I can use mask a lot, right? Um, you have to understand your faith. That's the second point. There were several years ago in the Science Times, um, in the New York Times, where there was a, an article called Science Confronts the Unknowable. Less is known than people think. And the, the, uh, the Sloan Foundation was giving away up to, I think, one and a half million dollars to various uh, natural and social sciences to study the unknowable, to get on the edge of what they understand and then study what they don't know. Interesting. And because, I mean, this is what it boils down to, what you don't know might hurt you. You may be making assumptions, the understanding was, of this foundation that might in the long run hurt us as it relates to sociology or biology or chemistry or physics. So let's understand what we don't know because it's really important. And so what the issue there is is that we all live in a world in which um, lots of things are uncertain, things that we don't know, the future, how your kidney works. I mean, there's, a lot, there's lots of things that we don't understand. And the issue is if you have made the wrong assumption, about what you don't know, if, if you've made the wrong leap of faith, it may come back to haunt you. See, think about what Dawkins said, that you're, everyone in here is living their life on the assumption about ultimate reality. Is God there or not? What is he like? Does he care about how I live my life? So that reveals that your faith is not just some kind of abstract thing. It's not just a so what kind of thing. It is the compass of your soul. You are basing the decision of how you spend your money and who you're going to marry and where you're going to live based on your assumptions, based on your faith, based on what's underneath the mask. It matters deeply about what your faith is and what you're holding on to because that's, about the, that's important because we have to understand what the nature of faith is. Now think about what faith is. Faith ultimately is trust. Faith is entrusting yourself to something or someone else. So it really doesn't matter how strong your faith is. It doesn't matter how weak your faith is, ultimately. I mean, of course you want to have strong faith if you're a Christian in God, but, it, but ultimately what matters is what are you putting your faith in, right? I mean, some of you have heard over the years this, this uh, example. Uh, let's say you're standing on a cliff, and um, there's a grizzly bear running towards you. This, is, this happens a lot in New York. And, uh, and you're looking down, right, and you see there's three different branches, and you know that you're going to have to jump if you're going to survive because that bear is bearing down on you. And so it doesn't matter whether at that moment whether you are bold in your jump or timid. It doesn't matter whether you're Clint Eastwood or Woody Allen. You just got to jump. But what matters is which branch? Which branch? Right? You could have the most timid, weak jump, but if you've grabbed the right branch, and it doesn't snap off, you're saved. Or you could have the boldness of Sylvester Stallone and jump off and grab the wrong branch and go crashing into the bottom of the pit. It doesn't matter how strong your faith is. What matters is where have you put your faith? What are you trusting in to be the compass of your soul?
See, let's think of a couple other examples. Let's say you've inherited, two, two different people inherit $25,000, right? And so one person goes with this financial advisor and the other person goes with that financial advisor and at the end of the one year, this guy, this guy has zero money and this guy has $100,000. Now, it didn't, this, the person who lost all their money, it wasn't because they had strong or weak faith, it's they just bet on the wrong horse. They put their trust in the wrong financial advisor. Or, or you could, uh, you know you have to go to surgery, right? And you do all the due diligence, you do all the reasonable things, you research. And then you, but finally you have to pick a surgeon. And you know what, sooner or later the anesthesia is going to kick in, you're going to go under and your life is in their hands. Did you put your faith in the right surgeon? doesn't matter how bold or timid you are. Where have you put your faith? Where is your trust? You see, remember, we have all made faith assumptions about ultimate reality. Who are you? Why are you here? Where are you going? Is there a God? We've all done them. We're living by them. They are the compass of our soul. We make decisions based on them all the time. And let me tell you, it's far more important to know what those assumptions are than who's managing your 401k. You know? See, let's go back to the case and to see the illustration. Look at verse 13. See Mary's reaction in, in verse 13 when asked, Why are you crying? Right? And what does she say? Because they have taken my Lord away. My Lord away. Not my friend, not my teacher, my Lord. What is she saying? I think that Mary had put all of her hopes, all of her trust, all of her dreams in that Jesus was who he said he was, the Messiah, the King, the one who would never leave or forsake her. And she had bet her life. For the last three years, she had lived her whole life trusting that Jesus was going to be the hope of Israel, the liberator of the oppressors, the one who would bring them back to the glory and now she comes to the tomb and she realizes that the, the branch is snapping off right in her hands. Why are you crying? Because they've taken my Lord away. The person I have put my ultimate trust in is gone. You see, and, and if you think about it, everybody in here, because we've all made those faith assumptions, we all have a Lord. We all have something that we put our hope in. We all have some branch that we're holding on to that, will give us, that we think will give us ultimate hope, ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose, like Mary thought Jesus was. And I don't care whether it's your money or your, or your job or your family or your looks or something. We're all grasping onto it. And if the Bible's right, because Jesus made you, you're made in his image and he knows you better than anyone else. Unless you ultimately put your faith in him, that branch is going to crash. It's going to break off right in your hand. And sooner or later, you're going to be crushed. That's what Mary was feeling. Now, I was... Uh, Watching the end of the episode of uh, Ugly Betty, one of these new shows uh, that's come on this fall. Yeah, you're giggling, so you've watched it too. You can admit it. Um, and it was like the last 15 minutes uh, that we turned it on. And it's, a, it's about a fictitious glamour magazine here in New York City. And Vanessa Williams is play, plays this kind of 40-ish diva who kind of created this magazine. She's an editor, a very powerful brilliant woman. And in this particular scene, she's uh, in some corner of the uh, offices trying on this dress with one of the um, women from, the, um, from the, one of those departments, and she's lamenting over the fact that she was a victim of her own success because she had placed her hopes and dreams and communicated the hopes and dreams that to be beautiful, that ultimate beauty was to be 22 in a size 2. Right? 
that that was what it meant. That was what was important. Young, beautiful, fit, attractive. And here she is in her 40s and she can't squeeze into a size 4. And she's depressed because the branch that she was holding on to, the thing that was giving her life meaning, her beauty, her success, the image that she had created was beginning to crack in her own hands because she was getting old. And she couldn't handle it. You see, everyone in here has done it. We all have put our hope, our faith, our trust in something, and it doesn't matter how strong, it doesn't matter how weak, it just, just the weakest faith in Jesus will be far more liberating than the strongest faith in anything else. Where is your trust? Where is your faith? Have you unmasked the doubts of your soul and seen what alternative belief do you have besides, is Jesus who he says he is? Is he really the Messiah? Is he the king? Is he the liberator of your soul? So first, take off the mask of your doubt and understand that underneath that mask is a faith, an assumption that you can't prove, that you've leapt onto, you've leaped, and you're holding on. Secondly, Understand that that faith is not just some abstract thing. It is guiding. It's the guidance system of your soul. It's, it's, it's dictating every decision that you're making about your life. Where is it? What have you trusted? And so the last point is, even if you are strong, even if you are holding on to the right branch, what do you do when the doubts come? What do you do when the doubts come? And that's the last point. We have to fuel our hope. Um, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is defined as the assurance of things hoped for. So if that's true, then hope is the thing that sustains our faith. Hope is the thing that fuels our, our belief. Hope is the thing that gives us a confidence, a certainty that we're holding on to the right branch. That in the end, despite the circumstances that I may be going through, I've made the right decision. In the end, everything is going to be okay. And we've seen with Mary, when she thought that she, would, she had held on to the wrong branch, how crushed we are, how crushed she is. And then in verse 19, which is not there, yeah, don't look. The very next verse, what we, John tells us is the, the rest of the inner circle were hiding out in a locked room because they were afraid. Because they had all held on to the same branch for three years, and now Jesus was dead. And they thought they were next. They thought that they had put their hope in the wrong thing. Doubt had crept in to the inner circle. So what do we do when our hopes are dashed? What do we do when we're struggling? We have to doubt our doubts and gaze at the tomb. That's how you fuel your hope. Two parts of this last third point. Doubt your doubts and gaze at the tomb. Because circumstances are going to come along that are undermine your faith and you have to doubt your doubts. Think about it this way. Here's an example. This is a, an updated version of a great um, example that C.S. Lewis gives in his book, Mere Christianity. Uh, let's say, um, as a single woman, you meet this great guy and he asks you out. And you have three closest friends in the whole world, girlfriends. And they don't know one another, but you, they have, you have been through thick and thin with them. You, you would trust them with your life, right? You could call them up at any time of the day or night, and you know that, what, that they love you, that you can trust them. And they each come to you independently and say, don't date this guy. This guy will break your heart. He will make you fall in love with him, and then he will leave. He cannot commit. Don't do it. All three of them come to you independently and tell you this. Now, what do you do? You go out, and you go out a second time, and you go out a third time, and, you're, and you begin to think, maybe I'm the one. Maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe this time I'll be the one that he won't leave. What are you doing? What's going on? 
Is it that all of a sudden the advice that your friends had given you is irrational? Is it that they're no longer trustworthy? No, you begin to doubt in the assurance of your friends, which means that you believe more in what you're seeing. See, your friends are on audio, but your trust in this guy is on video, and video is winning, right? You're believing what you're seeing, and you're doing what you're listening to now. That can't be true. Look at him. It's gonna, I'm going to be the one. And what you, and sure enough, he breaks up with you and breaks your heart, and you think, I was out of my mind. I was out of my mind to believe that. What was I thinking? You weren't thinking. And what you needed to do was doubt your doubts. You were doubting your friends instead of trusting them. And the same thing is true in your relationship with Jesus. Um, in Matthew 14, Jesus is walking on the water, and Peter, impetuous as he is, jumps out of the boat and, and begins to walk towards Jesus on the water, and he's walking, but all of a sudden a storm comes. And he begins to look around, and he begins to sink. And he cries out to Jesus, and Jesus saves him. And then Jesus says this. Jesus rebukes him and says, You of little faith, why did you doubt? That's the question, right? Why do we doubt? Why do we doubt Jesus? Well, in Peter's case, it was because the reality of the storm was greater than the reality of Jesus. That his belief, his faith, if you will, in the power of the storm to sink him, was greater than his belief in the power of Jesus to sustain him through the storm. Which belief was he going to hold on to? And what you need to do and what I need to do when we're suffering through those storms is to begin to doubt the doubts that we have about Jesus. See, let's make it, let's make it practical. You know, if you're a Christian, that what the Bible says is that you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage and you should be giving away at least 10% of your money to God's kingdom. That if you want, if you want to be liberated from the control that sex and money has in your life, if you want to experience true humanity, true flourishing, you need to believe Jesus when it comes to your sex and your money. So when we struggle with that, when we, when we struggle and give in and disobey those faith principles, what we're doing is saying, I trust my sex ethic, or I trust my money ethic more than I trust Jesus. That your money and your sex life is more real to you than Jesus. And you need to begin to doubt your doubts about Jesus' love for you. That he has your best interest in mind. See, if you're waiting for it to feel right, to give away your money, or, or to practice abstinence. You will wait a long time. You can wait a long time because faith is not primarily a function of how you feel. Faith is living out and believing what truth is despite how you feel. Right? It's like that woman in that example. She knew in her head that her friends were far more trustworthy than this guy. That's what she knew, but it didn't feel like it. See, faith is acting on what you know despite the circumstances of your life, despite how you feel. And see, so how do we get to the point where we can doubt our doubts about Jesus? You have to look at verse 9 and realize that is your relationship with him more intellectual than it is personal? Look at verse 9. You see, John, at this point, it says, didn't fully understand why Jesus had to rise from the dead. He didn't understand why Jesus had to rise from the dead. So implicit in that is that he didn't understand why Jesus had to die. You see, this is the scary part. You can believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and not be a Christian. You can believe in your head in the, in, in the resurrection of Jesus and suffer incredible doubts all of your life, not have any sense of assurance that he's there. If you don't know why Jesus had to die, 
and be resurrected. See, if it's just an intellectual thing, it will never be real in your heart. And when the storms come, you will doubt him because he's not real. And why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to, to be raised again? It's because when we make our careers or our money or our sex life or our family or anything the Lord of our lives, the thing in which we put our trust, the thing in which we put our hopes, if we make any of those things the Lord of our lives instead of Jesus, it's not just unwise, it's high treason. The Bible says it's rebellion, and we know it against the king of the universe. It's sin. And the, and the reason that Jesus had to rise again is because he had to die is because he went to the cross to take our place, to take the punishment for the high treason. So that, like in verse 17, we can say with Mary that he is our God and our Father instead of alienation from God because of our treason, because of our sin, because of our brokenness, because of our rebellion. When we were still sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. Jesus went to the cross. That's why he had to die for you and for me. See, if that hasn't gone from here down to here, then when the storms come, you will just give in to how you're feeling because the love of Jesus will not be real to you. See, don't you think if Jesus, the God of the universe, the perfect being, would submit himself to the ultimate horror of the cross for you, don't you think you could trust him with your sex life and your money? Where is your trust? Where is your faith? Is it real to you? Do you know personally why Jesus had to rise from the dead? If you don't, you will never understand how to doubt your doubts about Jesus. He will just be another teacher. Now, how do you make that happen? How do you and I rehearse that story in front of our hearts? How's your prayer life? You know, is your prayer life just a series of lists that you give to God and things you need? Or are you deeply engaged in conversation with Jesus so that you know him, not just in your head, but in your heart? So when the storms come, how's your prayer life? How's my prayer life? How, how, is, our, how is our scripture reading? Do we read the Bible? Do we, do we think about it? Is, is that the compass of our soul? Right? And how's our community life? You see, when we make announcements in the middle of the service, it isn't just that we're trying to, you know, break up the service. It's part of worship. Because to be a Christian is to be part of the community. And we don't just create all these events to keep busy New Yorkers busier, right? We do it because you, you need friends in your life. You need community in your life. If, you, if your basis of your Christianity is an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday, I can guarantee you that when the storm comes, you will doubt. You need, and I need, people in your life to speak truth when you're doubting, to encourage you, to comfort you, to, to challenge you in your life. And if you don't have that, you will sink every time. How's your prayer life? How's your scripture reading? How's your community life? I can also guarantee you that if those things are strong, you will survive any storm. You will, it's not that you won't ever have any doubts, but they will not sink you. You will not live a discouraged life, but a joyful life, a hopeful life. That is how you rehearse the gospel in front of you. And that's how you doubt your doubts about Jesus. The last point of how we fuel our hope is you have to gaze, and I have to gaze at the tomb. As I was thinking about this passage this week, there was one word that just kept resonating with me again and again. And that's in verse 16, and that's the word Mary. Mary. See, can you imagine, can you imagine what that moment was like? 
When, when Mary turned around and saw Jesus, when she finally realized who it was, that in this intimate, very personal, very private moment was the turning point of history. The turning point of history. You see, I think the reason that we struggle with doubt isn't primarily because of the kind of faith versus reason arguments or the supernatural versus natural or evil and suffering. Even those are all legitimate things that, that we all struggle with if we're honest. I mean, Christians have to be incredibly humble about those issues. I think, though, the fundamental reason that we struggle with doubt is because we think it's too good to be true. The resurrection is just too good to be true. When, she, when Mary turned around and realized who it was, she, he just couldn't, it's just too good to be true. You see, no matter how magnificent this world is, and it is, and how glorious it is, and it is, you heard Terry's prayer. This is a broken world. This is a world that lives in the shadows, the shadows of death, the shadows of greed, the shadows of corruption, the shadows of poverty, the shadows of homelessness. This is a, this is a broken world. And it is very hard not to give in to that brokenness and to think that that's just the way things are. I came across a quote um, from a book by Saul Bellow that kind of just captures this, his book Herzog. He put it this way, he says, This generation thinks that nothing faithful, nothing vulnerable, nothing fragile can be durable or have any true power. Death waits for these things as a cement floor waits for a dropping light bulb. In the end, it's just death crashing down. Everybody's branch snaps and we die in a heap. Death wins. It's hard not to think that way. I mean, you have, if you've read some of the um, reviews of the Lemony Snicket book that's come out, it's the very last uh, 13th of, in a series, and it's, these are evidently um, children's books that have a fairly dark view of the world. And um, there was one quote in particular that I came across in the review last week. Um, that This is a quote from the fairy tale. It's very difficult to make one's way in this world, it says, without being wicked at one point or the other, when the world's way is so wicked to begin with. See, in other words, fairy tales with happy endings are just that, fairy tales. That in the real world, the frog remains a frog. Cinderella never makes it to the ball, and the beauty never wakes up. And the sooner that you and I come to grips with that, the better we'll be. That's realism. The world is wicked. That in the end, it's just a cement floor, and we're all going to crash on it. But when Jesus says, Mary, you can almost feel the earth tremble. Because what that means, when Mary runs over to Jesus and grabs him, it's not just some reunion among friends, because Mary realizes that in the depths of her very soul, that it's true. That the thing that she had placed her life in, the thing that she had grabbed a hold of three years earlier, the things that Jesus had been telling that he was the Messiah, that he was the king, that he would never leave or forsake him, that death is not the final answer, is true because the reason that the, that the tomb is empty is because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. That is almost too good to be true. Almost too good to be true. You see... That's why we want the frog to turn into a prince. That's why we want Cinderella to make it to a ball. It's because it is true. Because there is hope. Because it's the story has a happy ending. Mary, Jesus says, it's true. The branch did not snap off. Even death itself could not keep me from coming back to you. You see, you want to fuel your hope? You've got to gaze at that tomb. And you have to believe that Jesus is alive. It was not grave robbery. And that is what fuels the hope of the community. And I think, at least in my own heart, 
the reason that we struggle with doubt is because even though we know it in our heads, we don't live like it's true. We don't really believe it. You know, think about this uh, one last example. Let's say that you um, came to a, an event like this or some other event, but you also wanted to watch the Giants game or some other sporting event. So uh, here you are, and the event is going on, but you have TiVo or some kind of way to, to tape the game. And so after the event, you go home, and you don't want anybody to talk to you because you want to watch it as if it's actually happening. You want to watch it as if you're watching it live. But of course, your next door neighbor comes by and knocks on the door and sees what you're saying. Oh, wow, wasn't that a great game? The Giants pulled it out with three seconds left. It was the greatest comeback in NFL history. And you just want to strangle your friend because you, he's ruined it for you, right? He's just ruined it. So your friend comes in and you begin to watch the game. And as you watch the game, and as your team falls behind by three touchdowns, you begin to kick the cat and throw things and curse. And your friend looks at you and you say, what is wrong with you? You already know who won the game. But you're acting as if it isn't true. I think that Christians oftentimes know that Jesus is alive, but we live as if it's not true. Do you know, not just in your head, but in the depths of your soul, that Jesus has come out of that tomb and he has called you by name and that it's true? That's what a Christian is. That what seems almost too good to be true is true. See, we need to fuel our hope by rehearsing the gospel story that you have to know why Jesus died. He died for you. And we have to fuel our hope by gazing at the tomb and realize that Jesus is alive. And then like Mary in verse 18, we have to go and tell everybody the best news that they've ever heard. Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word that reminds us of the things that we so easily forget, that we are all people of faith, that we are all living by assumptions, and most of all, that your promise in Jesus that you would never leave or forsake us is true. I pray that you would help us believe in the midst of our unbelief, and that you would make us more and more into a community of hope. And that that hope would be communicated in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, and in our families. Not for our glory, but for the glory of our resurrected King and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.